What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. April 7, 2016. Police are called to the Peabody Estate in South London after receiving complaints from tenants about a putrid smell. He opened the letterbox and he said, can you smell it now? And I said to him, do you know what it smells like? It smells like a dead body. The two police officers knock on the door of 49-year-old Stefano Brizzi's apartment. He greets them with an alarming statement. He said, I've killed a police officer. Um, Satan uh, told me to do it. I promised Satan that I would kill at the first opportunity. And awaiting them inside was a gruesome sight. They go into the bath room, and the bath is full of globules of fat, and they find remnants of the body. The body belonged to 59-year-old police officer Gordon Semple. The officers would soon find out that Semple had met his killer while using a dating app. They were essentially both looking for, for somebody to hook up with and have sex with. And, and the speed at which this happens, with which they meet, with which Gordon Semple loses his life, really is quite incredible. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Stefano Brizzi. Stefano Brizzi was born into a devout Catholic family in San Marcello de Pistoiesi, in the Italian region of Tuscany, on June 26, 1966. He was aware of his sexuality from an early age, according to former criminal psychologist Chris Carter and author Jeffrey Wansel. He knew he was a homosexual, but Brizzi also knew he was a Catholic, and that not only is against his religion, but it would really upset his parents if they were that religious. So he was in that kind of turmoil. I think his homosexuality haunted him. He felt that somehow it wasn't what his family would have approved of. He felt that he was out of step with his family. Brizzi went to the university in Florence, which is a, a very reputable um, university in Italy, not very far from, from where he was born and where he lived. From the university, he graduated and he got a very good job as a computer programmer in Italy as well. In 2008, at age 42, Brizzi was diagnosed with hepatitis C and tested positive for HIV. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes Brizzi began to feel a sense of shame. He would have felt some sense of responsibility for the situation that he found himself in. Uh, and I think he would have really felt that guilt. I mean, it's, it seems almost stereotypical to talk about Catholic guilt, but, but I think that's certainly what was going on with him. Four years later, Brizzi decided to relocate to London for a chance at a better income and different lifestyle. He was intelligent, IT expert, well-trained, and coming away from his native Italy meant that he could perhaps escape some of the family ties. He could reinvent himself, if you like. Brizzi found work with a merchant bank as an IT consultant and a web developer, earning £70,000 a year. 
but these changes did not help in the way he had seemingly hoped. I think the guilt he'd found himself suffering in Italy was not completely dissipated by changing countries. In 2013, Brizzi started experimenting with drugs, including the sedative GHB, as well as psychoactive poppers. He soon became immersed in a world of substance abuse and eventually became addicted to crystal meth. Now, in itself, one can only feel sorry for him because it's a dreadful addiction. It's very, very hard to uh, attack and to overcome. But to some extent, he tried. To try and overcome his addiction, Brizzi joined a support group. Brizzi does seem to be quite a, a dramatic and quite a, an elaborate individual, and, and some of his behaviour uh, around his crystal meth addiction really does highlight that. He reached a point where he was going to a support group and he wanted to leave his addiction behind. He conducted a, a funeral service for his crystal meth addiction. I think at one point he even constructed a coffin for it and said he was burying his addiction. He was basically saying, this is it, this is over, I'm burying this part of me and I'm moving on. And you can see those, those roots of his upbringing there, that idea of the Catholic faith and of ceremony and of ritual. He's drawing on those traditional values, those traditional beliefs in this new lifestyle. So I think here we've got somebody who's incredibly conflicted. He's somebody who feels like he should be a good Catholic boy. He knows that his behaviour isn't going to come up to the expectations of his family and his community. And he's really struggling. Brizzi wrestled with his addiction, and in 2015, he eventually lost his job. His life was beginning to fall apart. It would be fair to say that Brizzi was disintegrating. He became more and more introverted, almost nocturnal. He completely covered the windows of his flat so that no light came in. He didn't go out very much during the day at all. He became addicted to an American television show called Breaking Bad, in which at one point two of the main characters try to dissolve the body of a drug dealer in a bath of acid, which, for one reason or another, struck a chord in Britsy. Following a job loss and his battles with addiction, Stefano Brizzi fell into a dark world of his own creation, a blurred reality between fantasy and fiction. Author Jeffrey Wansel explains. So you have a man who is literally falling apart, is descended into a kind of madness of his own creation, fueled by crystal meth, fascinated by sex, desperately keen to have what he called chem-sex parties. Former criminal psychologist Chris Carter gives more insight into these types of parties. Chem-sex is pretty much a party or a get-together where is exactly what it says on the tin, and it's a sex party. The two biggest chemicals are used in the community for sex parties are ketamine and crystal meth. Brizzi began using the online gay dating app Grinder to regularly meet men for chemsex parties. 
it's an escapism from the real life. You know, it's, it's like nothing they've ever seen before. A lot of people, when they do something completely different, they go, wow, I love this. Brizzi became immersed in a world fueled by drugs and sex and would often go on chem-sex binges for days. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes he was looking for a sense of community. I think that Britsy really wanted to participate in, in a culture in which he felt that, that he belonged, in which he felt accepted. So I think he really did want to embrace it all part and parcel. Stefano Britsy's chaotic lifestyle was quickly spiraling out of control. He was unemployed and living alone in an apartment in Suffolk, London. He was ensnared in a world of drug and sex addiction. Reporter Tess de la Mer adds more. He was living a very sort of hermit-like existence. He was um, only really going out at night. He wasn't, he wasn't working. He was um, not interacting with many people um, socially. He was using the Grindr app an awful lot, but he wasn't having sort of normal everyday social interactions, such as like going to the pub or things like that. On the afternoon of April 1st, 2016, Stefano Brizzi exchanged messages with a man on Grindr and invited him to his place for sex. The man in question was 59-year-old policeman Gordon Semple. Emily Pennock, a correspondent at the Old Bailey, remembers Semple. Gordon Semple was from Inverness originally in Scotland and he worked for the Bank of Scotland in Inverness and then moved down to London where he became a police officer 30 years ago. He was working at the City Hall in Westminster as part of an antisocial behaviour team. He was very popular with his friends. At approximately 3pm, Gordon Semple arrived at the Blackfriars train station and made his way to the Peabody estate to see Britzi. Gordon Semple and Stefano Britzi didn't know each other. They'd never met. They had arranged to meet for casual sex. It was the middle of the day. It was a working day. Um, we know that Gordon Semple was on duty. It is presumed the two men spent the afternoon having sex and contacted other men via gay fetish apps to join them. There were other people who were, had kind of indicated that they were interested in coming to this sort of, this rendezvous. At around 7 p.m., another invited guest arrived at Britzi's and rang the doorbell. And after a while, Britzi answers and says, actually, somebody's fallen ill. It's okay that they're getting treatment. The party's over. If the man had entered the apartment, he would have learned the awful truth. Behind closed doors, Stefano Brizzi had murdered police officer Gordon Semple. According to Brizzi, the two men engaged in sadomasochistic sex acts that involved a collar, a mask, and a dog leash. These objects would become murder weapons. At some point during the, the course of events, Gordon had lost his life. He'd agreed to some bondage activity with Britsy, and it's believed that, that Gordon was strangled, and that's how he died. Forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton talks more about the axe that killed Semple. With pressure on the neck, there is only about 10 seconds before somebody loses consciousness if the pressure is too high. That means that if you don't have some sort of fail-safe in an autoerotic event, you can die very quickly 
because you lose consciousness and you can't save yourself. The interplay between pressure on the neck and sexual activity can be very, very difficult to work out when it stops being an inexperienced person in an accident and when it becomes deliberate homicide. In the days leading up to Gordon Semple's death, Stefano Brizzi had been abusing drugs, including crystal meth. Stimulant drugs like methamphetamine can have significant psychological and psychiatric effects, make people unstable, make them unpredictable. They can have all sorts of very damaging consequences. He lived in an extraordinary fantasy world of nocturnal oblivion, and so he just decided to kill him. I think it probably just came over him. I'm going to kill him. And he duly did. He did not know that Semple was a police officer. He was not aware that anyone would particularly miss Gordon Semple. As Gordon Semple lay dead in Breezy's apartment, his long-term partner was expecting to meet him later in the evening. They'd arranged to meet at a local pub near where they were living in Dartford, and they talked about having shepherd's pie for dinner. It was already in the fridge, ready and waiting for them. And they talked about recording a reality TV show that they both liked so that they could watch it later. Unaware that Gordon had arranged to meet Brizzi, he grew concerned. Gordon Semple's partner had become frantic with worry after he couldn't get hold of him uh, on the night of his disappearance. He'd phoned him... 18 times over the course of an hour and a half and being unable to get through was leaving messages on his aunt's phone. The next morning, he reported him missing to the police. Sunday, April 3rd, 2016. The Metropolitan Police launched an official missing persons appeal for their colleague, Gordon Semple. The following day marked three days since Semple's murder, and the caretaker of the Peabody estate started to notice a strange smell coming from Breezy's flat, says reporter Tess de la Mer. The caretaker didn't have any idea what happened. He knew it was a very bad smell. They had different theories about drains, and they initially thought that the occupier of the flat might have died. Steve Harris lives in the apartment above Breezy's on the Peabody estate. I walked in through the fletching, and the porter came up to me and said to me, um, excuse me, there's been a complaint. And I thought it was talking about me. Then he went on it's a, a complaint about a smell in the block. But where I live at the top, I didn't realise what was going on. So we both walked up into the block. He said to me, can you smell it now? A little bit. So what he'd what he done, he opened up the letterbox. And he said to me, can you smell it now? And I said to him, yes. Do you know what it smells like? It smells like a dead body. The idea of a dead body in the building was hard to imagine. Now, I've never smelled a dead body in my entire life. So he wanted to call the police. I'll come back up here, I'm up the window. Then all of a sudden, when like people turn their century and you've got an outside flu. So I'm looking out the window and I thought to myself, well, hold on a minute, mate. We just looked at your door, you didn't answer. So how comes your century on? 
I went downstairs on my own. I looked for the letterbox. He walked straight past and opened up the door. I said, excuse me, mate. I said, um, there's been a complaint about the smell in the block. So he's gone to me. Well, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm just cooking for a friend. Fair enough. I went back downstairs to the porter and I said to him, don't bother calling up the police. He's in. The smell of Semple's dead body was clearly attracting attention, and Breezy had to dispose of it quickly. The Old Bailey correspondent Emily Pennock adds more. Britzy, after the killing, he went to a DIY store and bought various different items, uh, including buckets, rubber gloves, cleaning products, large perforated metal sheet, which he used as part of the dismemberment of the body. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Britzy drew inspiration for his tactics from the show he had spent a lot of time watching. Britzy tries to dispose of Gordon's body in the same way that the Walter White character in Breaking Bad tries to dispose of a corpse. He buys acid, he tries to dissolve parts of Gordon's body, he dismembers him. He'd bought a combination of chemicals from a local hardware store. He didn't have exactly what he needed. I think he just thought he was going to make a cocktail and um, hope that it was going to have the effect that he wanted, but it only had a partial effect. However, Forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton says Breezy's efforts to cover up the murder were in vain. The truth is, it is very difficult to reduce a body to so little evidence that nothing will be found or nothing significant will be found. Yes, things like acids will damage the body, but very unlikely to destroy it to the point where something can't be found. Practically speaking, Outside of the world of TV programs, it's not a way to get rid of a body. There was no denying that Breezy was becoming more and more undone. It really is incredibly gruesome, and this suggests to me that this isn't somebody who is disgusted. This isn't somebody who is abhorred by by what's going on. And I think by this point, Britsy has become so kind of saturated with drugs. He's become so detached from reality that that line between fiction and, and reality really is completely crossed and completely blurred. He also went on Grinder and tried to cover his tracks and lay a false trail to put anyone off from suspecting that anything had happened that was untoward. He disposed of other body parts by taking them and throwing them into the river. And the disintegration then takes over, trapped in this tiny flat, blackened windows, with Gordon Semple's body. It is almost impossible to imagine what that must have been like. By Thursday, April 7th, the smell coming from Britzi's apartment was unbearable. Tenant Steve Harris and his brother decided to confront Britzi again. We both walked up. He uh, uh, um, approached the door. He's got his little card made out. He was a Sweeney. He opened up the door and the same sort of thing is, um, he's going, I'm sorry, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm cooking for my friend. That was it. The brothers weren't convinced and called emergency services. An ambulance was dispatched to Britzi's apartment. The ambulance turned up. Whether or not they got into his place or not, I don't know. But they must have smelled this smell. When they come back down again, I said to the woman, what's it smelled of? She said, it smelled like, it smells like rotten flesh. 
Well, when we both looked at each other, and it's just say like, well, something ain't right. The police arrived after the paramedics and two officers knocked on the door of Brizzi's apartment. They weren't murder squad detectives. They were local police, and they didn't really know what to expect. Stefano Brizzi answered the door, wearing a pair of pink Speedos and aviator sunglasses. There was this horrendous smell coming from the flat, and he said, I, I've killed a police officer. Um, Satan uh, told me to do it. I promised Satan that I would kill at the first opportunity. And these two police officers were confronted with a man who was possibly very, very dangerous. I think they initially thought that he was, he was insane, and they decided not to arrest him initially. They just decided to let him talk. This is a man who has lost contact with the planet, really. And he says, oh, yes, I've cut him up. I've dismembered him. I think the women police constable was probably completely confused by this. What on earth are you talking about? Well, yes, I, I killed him. And they go into the bathroom. It's an extraordinary descent into madness. The scene inside the flat was utterly ghastly. Police discovered the remains of dismembered and dissolved body parts. When they looked around the flat, there were buckets of dismembered body parts, including part of um, P.C. Semple's head. But they obviously didn't know P.C. Semple, so they wouldn't have known that it was him at that stage. He has to explain his actions. He's still very much under the influence of substances at this point. He's been taking crystal meth in quite large quantities for quite a significant period of time. And I think that reality really is a million miles away for him. So he's basically saying you know, that the most incredible things, like Satan, is, is responsible for, for the death of Gordon Semple. As the police secured the crime scene, they found a copy of the Satanic Bible on Brizzi's computer. He insisted, Satan had made me kill. This was not the first time that Brizzi had referred to Satan. I'm not sure I believe completely in possession although it is a familiar enough explanation which some murderers call upon. But I would say that in this case, Britzi almost certainly believed it to be true. He had convinced himself that he was possessed and that, therefore, he had to fulfil Satan's desire. Here's somebody who really has a lot of trouble at this point in time performing in a socially acceptable way. I think because his, his values and all of those types of things that inform the way we behave in front of other people are completely off kilter. He's completely lost his compass at this point in time. On April 7, 2016, Stefano Brizzi was arrested on suspicion of murder and taken to Lewisham Police Station. DNA tests and evidence found at his home would eventually confirm that the dismembered body was, in fact, Gordon Semple's. The press quickly got wind of the story. We got to the estate, um, there weren't loads of press there. There was a, a very tight cordon around it. We couldn't get very far in. We had had a tip-off. Um, of his image, um, of a photograph of Stefano Brizzi, and we were trying to find out anyone who knew him. 
we didn't find anyone because he was living such an isolated life. Police weren't willing to give us much at all because it was just so distressing, I think, particularly for Gordon Semple's family because it had gone from being a missing person case and not being massively unusual to being a very grisly murder. So information was meted out quite slowly. It wasn't until Breezy was interrogated by police that the details of the murder emerged. He was very forthcoming in his interview about what happened. The thing that always struck me about him was that he was a very um, educated and articulate man. He had an answer for everything. He wore sunglasses in his police interviews. And this is something that does appear to be incredibly bizarre. And I think what he's doing here, he's continuing to draw on that character from Breaking Bad, Walter White's alter ego of Heisenberg, who always wore sunglasses. And I think this is a way of basically psychologically detaching Stefano Brizzi from the person who's carried out this horrendous crime. Brizzi stood trial on October 18th at the Old Bailey. He was crumbling under pressure. He was incredibly distressed. Um, at the beginning, he uh, was sobbing loudly, crying, hyperventilating. There was this difference between uh, the man we saw on CCTV and the man we saw in his police interviews and the man who was on trial. One of the most incriminating pieces of evidence the prosecution had was the confession Brizzi made at the time of his arrest. Brizzi had abandoned his confession that he'd been told by Satan to kill someone. He gave a version in court where they'd had consensual sex. And he described a sadomasochistic sex game involving a collar and a dog lead. And the only thing that we know for certain is that that collar and this dog lead were used because they had both men's DNA on them. Britsy said in his evidence that the leash just slipped and it was an accident. But there were a lot of other aspects to the case that didn't quite tally with his version of events. First of all, he told a lot of lies uh, about what had happened. He lied to the man that came to his door to join the sex party. He then lied again, leaving messages on Gordon Semple's grinder account. And he lied to the police after they came to his flat and discovered the body. The jury also heard that acts of cannibalism might have taken place, something that Breedsey had denied. It was one of the most gruesome aspects of the case. They found evidence that Breedsey's cooker had been used to cook parts of Gordon Semple's body. Um, they found various utensils in the kitchen had Gordon Semple's DNA on it, including a pair of chopsticks and there were bite marks on a body part that was recovered. CCTV footage was also played, showing Breezy at a local DIY store on Monday, April 4th, three days after killing Gordon Semple. He bought several supplies, including pinchers, heavy-duty scissors, a putty knife, and large plastic buckets. In the CCTV footage, it's very clear he's looking at the thickness, he's looking at the depth, and at one point he put his head and shoulders in one of the buckets to measure if it was big enough to take a human body. And so I think he was obviously wary that what he was about to do. His defence was that he was high on crystal meth, but he was definitely lucid enough at that point to know this is what I'm going to need or I'm going to need some heavy-duty gear here. I think you can only see Britsy as a man who is 
destroying himself, literally falling apart in front of your eyes. Because Semple then becomes, poor man, part of the desperate, extraordinary, bewildering land, this mad world that Britsy has found himself in, in which he thinks it's perfectly all right to dismember Gordon Semple's body. Breedsey's neighbour, Steve Harris, was called to the witness stand. They showed me photographs of the bins because he went out and he was cutting him up. And there was a foot found um, in the Thames. All round here was closed off. They had suckers out in the drains. He must have flushed bits and pieces down the toilet to get rid of the evidence. The prosecution told the court that Breedsey was an evil and calculating man while the defense argued that Breezy was not a monster and that he had no recollection because of heavy drug use. Breezy was assessed by a psychiatrist. Uh, they didn't find that he had a defense of diminished responsibility or any psychiatric condition that would explain what he'd done. He was clinically sane. The jury had to decide whether to believe Breezy killed in a haze of drugs, delusion, and sleep deprivation, or the version he told in court that it was a sex game gone wrong. Breezy denied murder and manslaughter, but admitted to obstruction of a coroner by unlawfully disposing of the body. I didn't envy the jury. I thought they had a real tough job. It was um, 30 hours of deliberation. There was a majority verdict of 10 to 2. They obviously really struggled to reach that verdict. On November 14, 2016, the jury found Stefano Brizzi guilty of murdering police officer Gordon Semple. The following month, Judge Nicholas Hilliard sentenced Brizzi to life in prison with a minimum of 24 years and an additional seven years for obstructing a coroner. He was sent to Belmarsh High Security Prison in London. So you have in Brizzi a man overwhelmed with shame, conscious of his own gayness, desperate to try and do the right thing and yet finding it extremely difficult, put together. They are a potent mixture of ingredients that could turn into a killer. I believe that Britsy, in the end, tipped over the edge. It was literally one of those moments in which this extraordinary concoction of problems exploded. The tragic death of Gordon Semple highlighted some concerns about the use of dating apps and their potential dangers. I think at the time, I was also covering similar cases involving Grindr and involving predators stalking uh, social networks and, and dating apps. And this seemed to be part of a trend of cases coming through the Old Bailey. There was the Britsy case, which coincided with the Stephen Port case, which I also covered, which is a serial killer who targeted gay men on dating apps. But it seemed like a very alarming new trend. 
I think the bigger picture issue here for me is the context of social media, of dating apps, of, of this idea that we are basically just cutting out a lot of the process that we used to have around these activities. And we are almost consuming our partners. We're, we're picking people almost as if they're, they're objects, as if they're products. And I think we're, we're doing so in a way that's off the radar. So we're not meeting people in social situations where our friends and our peers and our colleagues are around. We're doing it on our own, and I think that makes us quite vulnerable. On Sunday, April 15th, 2017, almost a year after killing Gordon Semple at his flat in South London, Stefano Brizzi committed suicide and was found dead in his prison cell. He was 50 years old. I think that the reason that Stefano Brizzi ended his own life was essentially because reality was catching up with him. He's now having to live with the consequences of this horrendous crime that he's committed. And also the fact that this crime not only has broken the law, but it's broken a lot of those moral expectations that were placed upon him as a, a young Catholic boy growing up in Italy. It is telling that none of PC Gordon Semple's friends or family attended the trial. One can only imagine how absolutely devastating it would have been for them to have learned for the first time the details of his death and what happened afterwards. He was essentially stripped of his dignity. What Makes a Killer is an Audioboom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audioboom's Lauren Bogle, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audioboom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks goes out to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. We'd love if you could leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... August 19, 1987. The rural, idyllic market town of Hungerford in Berkshire is about to become the setting for one of the worst mass shootings in British history, perpetrated by one lone individual. A man had taken to the streets, firing randomly at strangers, intent on killing anyone who crossed his path. People were deeply shocked at the way this chaotic violence had erupted into what were small-scale, placid English lives. <laughs>